0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: St. James Lutheran Church. I'm glad you guys are here. A couple, well, one quick announcement from me, and that is uh, Bible study this morning at 11:30 a.m. I have not yet sent out the invitation to that, so if you didn't get it, don't panic. If you've signed up, but if you'd like to get it and you haven't been getting them, text me or email me and let me know, and I'll send you that uh, link as well. And then, secondly, we have uh, Stacy Stocky here this morning to talk about youth group stuff.
2: Good morning. I am here to invite you to come to youth group on Tuesday nights. If you are junior high or senior high, that's sixth grade, all the way up through senior year of high school, come on Tuesday nights from 6:30 to 8 p.m. here at the church. Me and Katie, Katie and I, we are <laughs> leading this together and we split up into two different groups. We go junior high and senior high after we have a devotion together. It's a lot of fun. We're studying Psalms 23 and I want to see you there. Any adults who would love to come, stick around. Hang out in the back, watch what we're doing and observe. I want you to come, I want you to be here. And if you feel like stepping up and helping and joining in with small group discussion, that would be fantastic. So there's that. We also have two events coming up really fast. The Senior High is doing a Bike and Brunch on September 26th, where we're gonna meet here at St. James, bring your bike, rollerblades, if you'd rather walk or jog, or if you just wanna kinda sit and stare at the beautiful lake on a Saturday morning in some peacefulness, Come with us. Come and join us. Afterwards, we'll come back here to the church for a picnic brunch. And this is where I'm asking all of you if you would like to donate some brunch items. (laughs) I have a sign-up sheet out back. If you'd like to help serve those brunch items, I need some people with masks and gloves to put food on plates so that we can all enjoy that time together. Junior high, that very next day, Sunday, is going to also have a little picnic lunch here at the church around noon. And then we're all going to go families. This is a family thing. We're going to go to Eckert's. It costs $5 to go out onto the field to pick apples. Junior high is covered. I'm taking them all. We will go pick some apples together, a couple of bags, and then divide them up with some caramel to take home. And it'll be a grand old time. If you would like to go out on the field too with your family, it's just $5 to do that. But you do have to register in advance to get your ticket. So talk to me about that. I have these little recipe cards out back on the table. They have apples on them. For any of you who would love to share with our junior high one of your favorite apple recipes, take this home, fill it out, bring it back, give it to me. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Stacy. Let's stand and begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, merciful Father, You keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We confess that we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have not heeded your law, nor have we rejoiced in your gospel. We confess that things have fallen apart. But Lord, you keep covenant even when we do not. Your love is steadfast when ours is frail and fallible. You are faithful even when we are faithless. We want you to be our God, and we want to be your covenant people. Grant us the gift of faith. By your Holy Spirit, work in us steadfastness and singleness of heart that we might manifest your love in the keeping of your commandments and the living of your gospel. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers in the name of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new and eternal covenant to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. The psalmist from Psalm 143, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you are looking at the bulletin right now, if you could flip forward to the epistle reading, uh, which comes on the next page. Let's do the epistle reading first, Romans 14, 1 through 12. And then we'll sing the hymn, and then we'll do the gospel reading. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's not weak, but by the way, not, not weak constitutionally, it's talking about in the uh, in the days of the early church, there was an aversion to eating meat, not because there's anything wrong with meat, but because the only place to get meat in the ancient Greco-Roman world was at the temples. There weren't grocery stores. If you wanted to eat meat, you would go to the temple and buy meat from their offerings, and that would be meat that you used. Paul has this conversation in Romans. He has the same conversation in 1 Corinthians where he basically says, Look, there's nothing wrong with the meat. It's delicious. If you want to eat it, eat it. But other Christians, you should, you should realize, are offended because that meat comes from temples. They're the weak ones. They don't need to connect that meat with the idolatry from which it came, but they do. And because we love them, we're going to treat them graciously. So when he says weak here and talks about vegetables, he doesn't. it's not like weak physically. It's just a weak conscience as far as eating meat, which would come from the temples. Verse 3, let not the one who eat despises the one who abstains. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the gospel of the Lord. So if you can remember, oh yeah, actually before I do that, let me start off by apologizing to you. And I know this is going to freak some of you out. I'm gonna, this this sermon. I mean, there's so much in this text, and it, it's so imp- This is so important. This is about the heartbeat of the kingdom, is forgiveness. And there's so much here. I'm gonna. I don't want to. I don't want to just scurry on past this like it's an interesting biblical topic. And so, like I said, this is going to scare some of you. What I have to say next, this might run a tad longer than most of my sermons which is saying something, since most of my sermons are long anyway. Uh, but I, I, do, I do think this is super important. Let me start off by just reminding you of, this, of the sermon text from last week that we talked about, Matthew 18. And um, in Matthew 18, it's the text about—I I talked about the first half of Matthew 18 and not this part, but if you'll remember, it's the part where Jesus says, if your brother or sister sin against you, go to them one-on-one and tell them their fault. And if they listen to you, then you've regained your brother or your sister. If not, go back to them with two or three other brothers or sisters so that, the, so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything can be established. If they still don't listen to you, then you need to take it to the entire church family. And if they won't listen to the church, then you treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. And then Jesus says, I give you guys that authority. I give the Christian church that authority to forgive sins and to hold on to sins. This is one of the reasons why it's very, 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 very important that you guys be forgiving the sins of your family members and your loved ones and your friends is because the forgiveness of Christ passes through you, through the Christian church, to each other. I need you guys to forgive me. Not because, you know, I just want to know that you guys like me and we're okay with each other, but because I actually need to receive the forgiveness of Christ. And Jesus says that happens through his church, because where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm there, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That raises this question that Peter has, which is, should we do this, like forgiveness, should we do it seven times? what at the beginning of our text this morning. That's super generous, by the way. Peter's being more generous than the rabbinic norm. In the Mishnah Yoma, it says this, let me quote it to you. If a man commits so, this is the, uh, a Jewish legal interpretation of the Old Testament. Mishnah Yoma says this: If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third times he is forgiven; the fourth time he's not forgive. The fourth time he's not forgiven. That actually seems really generous to me too, like especially in our culture where everything is permitted but nothing is forgiven. You know, we, we don't do forgiveness in our culture. We allow everything. There's a list of three or four things, so that if you do, there's no coming back from them. It seems really, really generous to say four times, you can sin against me four times and I will forgive you. The fourth time, though, is when I say, okay, I've let you punch me in the face three times and I've forgiven you. The fourth time, though, I'm done. Peter ramps that up by saying seven times, that's a lot. That's a lot to forgive somebody for punching you in the face. Jesus says, well, he says, no, 77 times. Um, let's make this point. I'm not even, this, I don't even know why I'm bringing this up, except it's interesting to me. This is, he's echoing. Do you guys remember the Lamech story from Genesis chapter four? Where Lamech says, you know, uh, this is right after Cain and Abel's story. Lamech kills a guy because the guy insulted him. And then Lamech writes a poem about it. And he says to two of his wives, hey, listen to this poem I wrote. And in the poem he says, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, Lamech's vengeance is 77-fold. I've killed a man for insulting me, he says in, in the song. Basically, like, you don't screw with me. Whatever you give to me, I give you 77 times back. Jesus is echoing that. He's almost quoting that from Genesis 4 and twisting it around. Whatever wrong you do to me, I will give you 77 times back forgiveness. Anyway, Jesus' main point, you guys know this, you've heard this before, is not, okay, so 77 times, that's a lot, but... I've got paper and pen. I can keep track of seventy-seven times. That's not the point. In the economy of the world, forgiveness is transactional. Forgiveness is something that you do. Um, actually, forgiveness forgiveness is something that you do if somebody does what you want them to do. That's what I mean by transactional. Forgiveness is something that you primarily do in our culture. You primarily do for your own mental health. Forgiveness is what you do for self-therapy. Um, you know, forgiveness is not something that, it's not necessary. you don't need to necessarily offer forgiveness to somebody else. You just have to internally forgive somebody else so that you feel better. I was, I just, just for kicks, I looked on Mayo Clinic's website for a definition of forgiveness. You know there's a ton of stuff on the Mayo Clinic website. And there's a lot of mental health stuff. Anyway, the, the Mayo Clinic's, um, there's this, Section on, you know, in, in their mental health section on forgiveness. They define, they, they, they define forgiveness this way. Let me quote it to you. Forgiveness is, according to Mail Clinic, letting go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. Letting go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. Almost all of us think in our culture of forgiveness that way. Which is good. You should let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. But you see what it, do you see what that is? That's primarily internal. Like, if you punch my face, I don't really need to deal with you anymore to do this kind of forgiveness. I can walk away, I can cut off the relationship, and then I can go breathe deeply and give up thoughts of resentment, work on giving up thoughts of resentment and revenge. That's something I can do on my own. Whereas in the Bible, it says this is why how many times do I need to forgive is the wrong question because it's, it's transactional. Like, what do I need to do for my own well-being? How often do I have to forgive before I'm like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. But in the Bible, forgiveness, in the economy of the kingdom, and that's what that's, this is what this is about, verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared. It's about God's kingdom. It's about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ here and now. Forgiveness is relational. It's about restored relationship. And so it's super important. There's a lot that, a lot to be said here. I'm not going to say everything, of course, But from this story here, I want to point out, if I can, I want to point out three things to us that this story tells us about biblical forgiveness. One is, is that forgiveness is painful. The second thing is that forgiveness is possible. And the third thing is that forgiveness is, um, it's uh, passed on. Forgiveness is paid forward. Okay, so first of all, forgiveness is, real biblical forgiveness is painful, okay? Look at verse 24. Uh, The king is settling his accounts, and one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. You can read your marginal notes if you want there. A talent in the Greco-Roman world, it's it's almost a universal, uh, it's not a coin. It's a measurement of weight. So when you think of like the parable of the talents, don't think of coins. It's actually a unit of weight. A talent is roughly 70 pounds. A talent is roughly 70 pounds. Okay, so does anybody know how uh, much gold is going for? Per ounce right now, it's close to two thousand dollars an ounce, right now. Okay, so do, do just do the math in your head real quick. So seventy pounds of gold is how much? Okay, and then multiply that by ten thousand, and the number that you come up with, I, I'm just doing this in my head right now, and it's twenty-one point seven billion. That's, I'm just kidding. I couldn't possibly do that in my head, or even like on, even on paper. That's actually, uh, uh, I used a calculator for that. It's, it's actually just an absurd, it's, it's, it's an almost impossible amount of money. Just for, just for a point of reference, um, Josephus tells us that one year about this time, the entire tax revenue from the regions of Perea and Galilee combined was 200 talents. 200, that's entire tax revenue from, in, from two regions combined in, in the province of Judea. And what we're talking about here is 10,000 talents. Is it possible— is it possible to run into debt to somebody twenty one point seven billion dollars? Probably not. This is probably not like a you know a literal scenario. What Jesus is saying is, is, this guy has a gazillion dollars in debt. He has an almost infinite amount of debt. There's no way he can pay this off. And now Jesus is going to forgive this debt, right? So we're going to come back to verse twenty-seven in a minute. In a minute. But out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him. The... So it's interesting in verse twenty-six. The servant falls on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It's actually not possible for him to pay everything. There's not enough talents in the Roman Empire to pay that back. But the master forgives him everything. So this is what I mean by forgiveness is painful. Somebody has to eat $21.7 billion. And the master says, I'll do it. Now that doesn't even really compute with me because that's just too much money. Maybe something like for me would be like if if I loaned you ten thousand dollars and then you said I, I can't pay that back and I'm not going to be able to pay that back, and I said to you, "Okay, I'll eat it." That would hurt. That like financially, that would put my family in a pretty big hole. This is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is painful. So, so here's a start. Here's a starting starting spot. Baseline biblical definition of forgiveness. Biblical biblical forgiveness is taking the pain that somebody else rightly should be carrying and carrying it yourself. Taking the pain that belongs to somebody else and deciding I will carry that for them even though that pain they should be paying for. Even though the servant owes the $21.7 billion, the master says I'm going to eat that. So let me give you, uh, just, just practically speaking, t- t- let's move away from money terms. The sinfulness, the brokenness that causes you pain, deciding that the person who causes that pain and brokenness, you're not going to make them pay for it, but you'll pay for it yourself. Which this is, a good st- this is a good spot to stop and handle one of the misconceptions about forgiveness. Here's one of the reasons why a lot of us struggle with forgiveness is because we think, that if I forgive him for punching me in the face, it says it's okay. That if I forgive them for abandoning me, I'm basically just saying, okay, it's fine. What you did to me is not a big deal. And what this is saying is that $21.7 billion is $21.7 billion. The master doesn't say, whatever, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, even, I don't even keep track of my money, you know. Whatever, you're free. It's not that, that's, a, that's an awful lot of money to eat. That's an awful lot of pain to bear. And that's what biblical forgiveness is, is choosing to, to bear that. Okay, so some practical examples real quick. Someone talks poorly about you. Someone's gossiped about you, and you know they've gossiped about you, and then they come to you and they say, look, I, was, I talked to those people, and I said stuff about you that I know, I either know now or I knew then, but didn't want to admit it. I knew it wasn't true. And I really, I need you to forgive me. And you're looking at this person, and you know that what they've said is out there now, and the rumors are out there. And even, you, even if you could go and contact, contact trace that rumor all the way back through every place it's gone and talk to every single person and say, look, I need to tell you something, it's not true what you heard about me. And even if you could possibly convince all of them, that cloud, that color, that instant inclination they heard when they first heard that story can never be done away with. And you know that, and you're standing there and you're looking at that person who wants the pain of their guilt To be done away with by your words. But you know that in doing so, you can't possibly in justice say, not a big deal, don't worry about it. It doesn't really bother me, because that's not true. It's not okay. What you're doing biblically is you're saying, okay, I'm going to absolve you of that pain. You no longer need to feel guilty about that. I'm going to live with the pain of the rumors, I'm going to live with the pain of the damaged name. And I'm going to tell you that you are completely free and back in my good graces, and I completely accept you like nothing ever happens. That's painful. Another example, real quick: someone abandons you. You're abandoned by a spouse or a close friend, or a child, and then they come back and they say, "I'm sorry. Will you forgive me?" And can that? Can those words? Can that? that can that plea for forgiveness do away with the years of? mixed feelings of long for them and wanting them back so bad and at the same time being angry at them because they betrayed you and the feelings of the, the, the blow to your self-worth from thinking i'm the kind of person that people walk out on can that request i'm sorry will you please forgive me can that can that undo all those no and you should not try to make it do that this is not self-therapeutic you're not trying to get rid of the pain you're taking the pain and you're carrying it on your own shoulders that's what biblical forgiveness is. One last example. I was going to tell you this story, and then I thought, no, I'm just going to read you this story because it's too good, and it's way better said than what I read. Some of, some of you will know the story of Corrie Ten Boom, and uh, she lived through World War II. Her and her family lived in Holland. Her father was a watchmaker, and they were Christians, devout evangelical Christians. They hid Jews in their house. She wrote a book that you should you should check out. It should be required reading for all Christians. If you were kind of like we're into the Billy Graham scene, like in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, you would know about Corey ten Boom because she would speak frequently at his events. Um, They built this secret room. This is the, the, the hiding place is the name of her book that describes this. They built this secret false wall room in their house to hide Jews from their town and when the Nazis came through. One of their neighbors outed them, though, and the entire family was sent off to a concentration camp. And she lived through that. And uh, uh, after the war, she traveled around and talked about her experiences and talked about God's forgiveness. And near the end of her book, The Hiding Place, she tells this story. And, and this is a little bit long, but, but uh, it's way better than me just recounting it to you. So do you mind if I read this to you? Here's what she says. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I told them, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister Betsy's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. He said, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbruck in your talk. He was saying, "I was a garden there." No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, "I've become a Christian." I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, and again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins every day had to be forgiven, and I couldn't. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, and now she quotes our Matthew 18 text. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. Forgiveness isn't an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. So maybe the best example I could think of, of real biblical, and it's an extreme example, right? None of us are gonna be in that spot, probably. But true biblical forgiveness is not saying, what you did is okay, because it's not. Sin is always sin. Brokenness is always brokenness. Injustice is always injustice. and should never be modeled, should never be uh, um, uh, weakened or made palatable just to make things easy, but should always be called for what it is. And what that means is, if that other person is going to be released from that brokenness and pain and sin, is that somebody is going to have to carry it themselves And that's what biblical forgiveness is, is us carrying that sin ourselves. This is not possible. We can't possibly carry $21.7 billion worth of debt in our own bank accounts. But thankfully, point two, it actually is possible. And the reason why it's possible, and this is the main point of the story, this this is the centerpiece and keystone of the sermon, is because true biblical forgiveness comes out of God's character and what he's done for us. True biblical forgiveness flows from who God is. The interesting thing about this story is that God, this this, this master, this king, the God character, is both immensely wealthy. He has $21.7 billion uh, worth of money to say, I can eat that, and I'm willing to do that for you. But he's also merciful and tender enough to be willing to do it. Look at verse 26. The servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Out of pity for him, the master released him and forgave the debt. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Have you ever heard of the kind of person who has the kind of money and power to eat $21.7 billion of debt and still have money and power and at the same time is both weak and merciful and pitiful enough to forgive it and want to forgive it and not go bust? That's not the way it works in the world. In the world, there's two types of people There's the, uh, uh, here's a reference to uh, It's a Wonderful Life. There's the, the Mr. Potter type people who have the money and who have the power. And the reason why they have the money and the power is because they're firm enough and they're strong enough to force other people to give it to them. They're firm enough and strong enough to say, I don't forgive debts. If your mortgage is due, it's not my fault that it's cold outside. It's not my fault that you just lost your job. It's not my fault that your wife is pregnant. That money's due and that money is mine. The only people who have $21.7 billion are the people who are firm enough to squeeze it out of everybody else. And the George Baileys of the world who are merciful enough and kind enough to forgive debts don't have any money and power because they're too busy forgiving debts. But here in our creator God, at the cross, you find a God who's both immensely rich and powerful, powerful enough and rich enough to forgive $21.7 billion of debt debt, and merciful enough to to, to, to want to do it. This type of person only exists in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's able and willing to do that. One of our problems with forgiveness is so so, you know, the payout is, you know, go to the cross. And now it's my job to try to convince you that this is constantly necessary, to draw upon this well of power, money, forgiveness, money, and pity to receive this. You know, one of our problems with receiving this ourselves is that we like to think that what we've done enough, that what we've done to God isn't so costly that it would cost him $21.7 billion. You know, we've stepped on his toe. You know, maybe it's kind of, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of put, put him out of sorts for a second, but just a quick, oop, I'm sorry, and another quick, uh, no big deal, it's just my toe, and we're on our way. Or we like to imagine that what we've done isn't so bad that it needs his pity. Like, if you step on my toe, I don't have pity for you. If you say, will you forgive me for stepping on your toe? I'm not like, oh my goodness. My heart goes out to them. I'll forgive them. We like to imagine that we're somewhere, of course God accepts us, we're Christians. Right? We're not that bad. And yet this story insists that our debt's actually $21.7 billion. right? So you guys have, uh, William Shakespeare, it looks like William Shakespeare, when he was young, was accused of poaching deer. Harry and I read, uh, I told you guys about this. Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. There's a guy in there who gets executed. He's a citizen of of, of England. He gets executed for killing one of the king's deer. Why is that? Why is killing the king's deer a capital offense? Well, it's because since it's the king's deer, it's literally priceless. It belongs to the king, and so any offense against any of his belongings is a defense against his imperial majesty. All of his deer are, there's no amount of money that that guy could say, Sorry, I killed your deer. Can I pay you back? No, my deer are priceless. That's why it's a capital offense. Now, you and I know that that's deeply offensive. The reason why we know it is because kings and queens are no different than, than me. My, my property is no different than your property in terms of value just because I own it or you, you own it. Right? We're, we're egalitarian in that way, in a good way. But now what we don't want to lose is th- this notion that God's property is actually infinitely priceless to him because it's his. And when we damage his property... It's like poaching one of the king's deer. It's actually a capital offense. And we're like, why? Well, it's not that big of a... It's just a deer, God. You know, I just... You know, I, just I, I know I lose my temper, but it's, you know... It didn't hurt anybody. That's actually a capital offense. We also like to imagine that what we do doesn't demand the kind of pity that's offered to this guy here. It's not bad enough that it needs that sort of pity. But damaging what God has made is horrible, and it deeply offends him. Just like damaging, if I damaged something that you had made, it would be deeply offensive to you. Like, no, not that, not I don't know. Think about this. What's the most precious thing that you've made? Many of you, not all of you yet, but many of you. The most precious thing that you've made is like another human being. And if somebody damaged that, that human being that you and your spouse made, would you be like, hey, no biggie. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not hurt by that. You would be rightly and justly furious. Why? Because that's yours. And yet we damage ourselves, who God made, internally, externally. We damage our relationships with God, which God made. We damage other people that God made. We damage the environment that God made and then expect it to be not a big deal. And what the story is telling us is that we desperately need the richest man on earth to have pity on us and to cancel our debts. And thankfully, he's the kind of God who does it. He's the kind of God who looks at our worst sins, all of our sins, and says, I'm able to pay for that, and I want to pay for that. Now, a couple quick notes here before we move on. Flowing out of this notion that forgiveness is possible because biblical forgiveness flows out of who God is. A couple quick notes that flow out of that. Every time I talk about this, somebody will say to me, I I preached if I preach a sermon dedicated to forgiveness, I did that maybe five or six months ago, and people, I had the same conversation after the sermon with people, different people. One is, a lady said to me, I get what you're saying, it's good, it's helpful, but ultimately my main problem is I can't forgive myself for what I've done. And so what do we say about that? In the story, biblically, if real biblical forgiveness comes from God, then your inability to forgive yourself is actually a misread on your part because you don't need to forgive yourself. The slave who owed the $21.7 billion doesn't go to the master and say, hey, look, you're nice, but really, I need to forgive myself. That's the main thing. No, the main thing is that the slave, that the the king to whom he owes $21.7 billion has forgiven him. Look, let me say this. First of all, a couple couple things. First, practical. You'll never forgive yourself. You struggle with that, everybody struggles with that. I'm telling you, there will never be a point in your life unless you abandon, you can self-medicate and get here. There's lots of things you can do maybe to try to get here, but you will never be able to look yourself in the face in the bathroom mirror and say, I'm 100% okay with you, never. You will never be able to forgive yourself. Thankfully, you don't have to. You don't have $21.7 billion. The king of the universe does. So what am I saying to you? you're you're aiming at the wrong target. Don't try to forgive yourself. Instead, what you should do is come more to grips with the fact that God has forgiven you. That God who knows way more about your foibles than you do, and remember, you'll never be able to forgive yourself for your own eccentricities, for your own sins and weaknesses and failings. I look back at the things I've done to damage my family. I look back at the 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 conversations I've had with people that were self-serving. I can never go back and undo those. Never can I say, you know what? I'm fine with what happened. Never. Instead, what do I need to do? I need to go to the foot of the cross and realize that the, that the one who died for me says, Aaron, I know about all of that. And I even know some stuff that you've done wrong that you aren't even aware of yourself. And I completely accept you and love you, no questions asked. You don't have $21.7 billion with which to pay yourself off, but I do. You don't have enough self-pity, Aaron. You don't have enough self-empathy and, and, and uh, uh, self-serving focus to feel as sorry for you as I feel for you. You don't have enough love for yourself, you don't have as much love for yourself that I have for you. You could never have as much mercy for yourself as I have for you and I'm giving you infinite love and mercy and infinite forgiveness. And it's my job as a Christian not to try to forgive myself but to live in the light of God's forgiveness, to believe that I'm completely accepted and forgiven by God and Jesus Christ. That's the first misconception that flows that can be answered by this notion that forgiveness comes not from ourself but from God. Remember, you're not able to forgive other people. You're not able to forgive yourself. Only God can forgive. Here's the second thing. What about forgiving other people who don't ask for forgiveness? How do I do that? I had the same conversation after the last sermon. Somebody said to me, there's this person, and I've actually talked to them about it. They have no interest in changing, and I want to forgive them, but they keep on doing the same thing, and I just can't forgive them. Okay, If forgiveness flows from God, what does that mean for this? It means this. You can't forgive them. You can't forgive somebody who doesn't ask for forgiveness. Remember, biblically, forgiveness is not you coming to be at peace with the events that have happened in your life, coming to let go of resentment. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness in the Bible is restored relationship. You can't restore that relationship if somebody else doesn't want it restored. You can be prepared for that, though. Biblically desire it and long for it. Let me give you a couple of biblical biblical examples, not from this story, but to go outside of this to illustrate this. Stephen, remember uh, the, the, the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter six. He's being stoned by these people who have actually no interest in being forgiven by him because they're convinced that he's wrong. He knows that they're wrong, but they're stoning him to death. What does Stephen do as he's dying? He does not say, it's okay, guys, I forgive you. No, because he can't do that. He can't forgive other people. He doesn't have that power. What does he do instead? he goes above their heads and he says, God, don't lay this sin to their charge. They don't want forgiveness yet, but God, on the last day, bring them to a, before the last day comes, bring them to a place of forgiveness. Bring them to a place where they understand and ask you for, not me, but ask you for forgiveness. And Stephen is actually mirroring the words that Jesus himself spoke from the cross. Jesus says, Jesus on the cross, even the eternal son of God on the cross does not say, I forgive you and you and you. Instead, he prays, Father, you forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If, if only God can forgive sin, then when you need to forgive other people and they're not asking for it, go above their heads. Say, God, this one's in your court. I can't do this, the relationship, I want to restore the relationship, but I need you to actually fix this. I need you to forgive them. Remember, forgiveness comes from God. Now, what does this mean? So, I'm t- so what I'm saying is you can't forgive yourself. You can't forgive other people. So, <laughs> How do we do forgiveness then in the Christian in, in, in the community of Jesus followers? This is point number three, and then we'll be done. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness is paid forward. It never comes from you. You don't have that kind of cash. You don't have that kind of pity. You don't have the ability to forgive other people for their sins. Instead, what you do is you pay forward uh, the sins. That, that you pay forward the forgiveness that you've received at the cross. Look at verse um, 32. The master summons the wicked servant. So, okay, so uh, set this up. The servant walks out completely forgiven of his $21.7 billion debt, and he runs into a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. A denarii actually is a coin, and it's, uh, you can buy these coins on eBay. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, the denarii was the wage for a one day's labor for a common day labor. If you were a farm worker, or if you were a construction worker, a denarii was the average day's wage. So 100 denarii is not a small amount of money. It's, what, what is that, like three, four months of uh, a salary for, uh, or, or pay for the average citizen of the Roman Empire? It's not, it's not a small sum of money. It's going to hurt him if he wants to swallow this up. However, it's nothing compared to the, with the $21.7 billion that just got forgiven. And he says, no, I'm not going to forgive that for you. And so the master finds out, and now go back to verse um, uh 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. In Greek, the word all is the first one, the first word in the sentence. All that debt, I forgave you. Think about that massive amount of money that I just cleared your name of. I released you of all that debt. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? the mercy that i gave you should have flowed through you to him and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt until recently even in even in the west debtor's jail was a, was a thing like you put somebody who was in debt into prison they couldn't pay it in prison right but it kept them you know kept him from running away and it also encouraged their family and friends to pay off the debt to get him out so he puts him into this prison and then jesus finally says and jesus doesn't always end his parables with a, a with the moral of the story. But here he does, and it's a punch in the stomach. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now think about this for a second. He is not saying, I need you to start forgiving people, and if you don't, you're going to hell. In the story, he's saying this. I have supplied you with this near, in the story, but in real life, with this infinite supply of forgiveness. And I need you, if you've really experienced that, to be a conduit to that, to other people in your life. So uh, a week or two ago, I was in the drive-thru at Annie's because that's like usually where you can find me. And I, was, I would pull through, pay for the custard, and the, the teenager at the counter said, um, said, listen, about a half hour ago, somebody came through here and said, I want to pay for the person behind them. And so that person pulled up, and we told them, and they said, I'll oh, just give it to the person behind me. And it's been going like back for like a half hour now. And the people have just been passing. It's 12 bucks. And I, I could take that off your bill or if you wanted to pass that back. I couldn't possibly say, yeah, let it stop here. I'll take that $12 off. I, I couldn't possibly do that. You know, it, just not, it just didn't, it was clearly, the wrong thing to do. And the reason why is, is because it's not my $12. That was not my $12. I don't have a right to use that twelve dollars to pay for my custard. You pass it on to the person behind you. That—that's what he's saying here. You—you you don't have. You're not able to forgive yourself. You're not able to forgive other people. Instead, what you're doing is you're drawing on this infinite amount of forgiveness that you have already received, and are just funneling it forward to other people as a conduit. This is the main point. The main point here that Jesus makes at the end is not. I need you to forgive other people or I'm gonna punish you. It's this, people who willingly forgive other people in the name of Jesus are people who've really experienced the gospel. And people who are unwilling to forgive, let me say it this way, all of us are here, right? All of us who struggle with forgiveness, the extent to which you and I struggle to forgive other people is the extent to which we do not realize our position at the foot of the cross. The extent to which you and I struggle to forgive other people is the extent to which we forget the gospel. The extent to which we forgive how much has been paid for us. Jesus canceled a $21.7 billion debt that I had. And for me to hold your several dollar debt over your head because I just can't let this go. I just, I can't do it. Shows that I am not grasping who I am in Jesus Christ. That I am not forgiven. Last thing I'm going to say, and we'll be done. Practically, what, what, what help can I offer to, to us from this story in forgiving each other? Go to the foot of the cross. Go to the gospel. You struggle with forgiving? Everybody does. Go to the cross and look at Jesus. You struggle with that debt that other people have to you? Go back and look at your empty, at your, at your empty loan statement. Go back and think about how much Jesus has paid for you to be accepted freely by God and then just let that flow out from you to other people. Let's pray. God, help us to be people who live out the gospel to each other. Help us to be people who freely pass on your forgiveness, the forgiveness which we have in your son Jesus, to each other. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, please stand with me and we'll continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us and for being a good God to us, and we thank you for, like I just, it's, I hate to say this, but like working on this text this week, I don't know why I'm surprised by how big my debt is. I've confused grace in my life with permissiveness. I've confused the gift of your son Jesus Christ on the cross for me. I don't know why. I've confused it as some sort of like your stamp of approval on me per se, that somehow I'm okay now and God, I I thank you for reminding me this week of like the debt that I owe you. God, I want to experience the joy of your gospel, the joy of your forgiveness. And I'm glad that you gave that to me this week because I'm glad that you gave me this vision of my 10,000 talent debt, which I've owed to you. And I praise you. And and let me pray on behalf of our church right now. We praise you for the forgiveness of this debt, that you've wiped it clean because you're strong enough to do it and you're merciful enough to do it. And now we bow before the foot of your cross, and we praise you and we thank you for this grace and for this forgiveness. Lord, in your mercy. God, we also want to pray that you would help us pass this on. Help us, help us here in Glen Carbon not to be fundamentally the right theology ones, the right worship ones. Help us not to be the good citizen ones even. Help us be the ones who freely offer your forgiveness all around this community in words of love and grace and acceptance, in acts of mercy, in, in taking your gospel out into this world in all of its full bodied glory. Help us to freely accept those, Lord, who, who sin against us, who, who damage us. Help us in the name of Jesus to be willing to bear their pain, not because we're able to bear their pain which they've caused, but because you've borne our pain. And now in your son, Jesus Christ, allow us to share in this mission of bearing the pain of the world on our own shoulders. Help us to show Glenn Carbon who your son, Jesus, is by doing this. Lord, in your mercy. Father, pray for everybody who's struggling, especially this morning, we pray for those of us who are struggling to offer forgiveness and to receive forgiveness. Give us the grace to do both, Lord, in your name. Not as acts of strength and power on our own, but as acts of people who live in the releasing of debts. Father, I also pray for those who struggle with physical illness and with uh, uh, mental illness and with just all kinds of bad circumstances, physical and psychological and spiritual. We want to pray this morning that you would be especially with uh, Nick, David Mardell, Wilson's nephew, who uh, has cancer which is spreading in his body and that you would bring healing and hope to him. Lord, bring healing and health to everybody who's struggling with all kinds of sicknesses. Father, we pray that you would show your resurrection power in a really spectacular way by both healing our sicknesses, healing our relationships, and coming back and making all things new. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these things only because your son Jesus has bound us up in himself, has called us his brothers and sisters, and now brings us into your throne room as your children, and as your children, heirs of all things. And so we're, at, we're bold enough to ask you for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now let's confess the words of the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.